our gathering here today is really hard to explain. We don't think of it that way because we've had 2,000 years to get pretty comfortable with the idea. But if you go back to millennia, many would question what right, what place do Gentiles have to gather and to worship God as Gentiles? This is not a question that keeps us up at night. We don't really think much about it or worry about it at all. But imagine that your family owned a commercial building in St. Paul for six generations. The building was paid off generations ago, and you now have a prosperous business leasing out space in this building. There's no worries, really, along those lines. But then one day an attorney informs you that your property was obtained illegally. And now there is a lawsuit against you that wants to take possession of your building. Suddenly, what brought no worries, what you took for granted, you're thinking an awful lot about. If we could just tap that mindset, that sense for a moment. Like I said, we don't stay up at night worrying about why we should gather as Gentiles. That doesn't cause us any trouble. But if, if we would tap that idea, that thought for a moment, it will help us to understand the text that is before us. This sudden heightened interest due to a question about our legitimacy as a church. We don't think about it often. But the explanation of this gathering, the foundation of it, is really pretty stunning. And it's an important aspect of who we are to recognize why we are here, what is the authority for our gathering, what is God doing to bring this group of people here in this place together today. And the more that we understand that idea, the more that we understand our identity the deeper we grow in our walk with the Lord. So much of what we discuss in this gathering, as we look at God's Word, is really to understand who we are. It doesn't come by nature to perceive ourselves rightly. From the very beginning, we have to learn to think about ourselves differently. Sometimes that's a negative assessment. Sometimes... It's a positive assessment that goes way beyond what we could ever imagine about ourselves. But we come upon such a text today. Again, not one that keeps us up at night, but one that's very much a part of our identity and so is important to our walk with the Lord. So think of the matter in these terms. For 2,000 years, these words of the Lord prevailed in the history of redemption. But Genesis chapter 12, think of this as the word of the Lord. This is what God has revealed about His saving purposes. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chooses this man, this nation ultimately, to bless the world. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 6, He says that I have chosen you. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you have earned. But I have chosen you because I've chosen you. Isaiah chapter 41. But He says, you are my people. I have chosen you. You have been called, as Deuteronomy puts it, a kingdom of priests to the nations. And on and on we could pile up the texts, but they string together and make very clear that God has chosen Israel as His people through whom to bless the world. Now, As we come to Paul in Romans chapter 9 today, we remember that he's under pretty heavy criticism from people who believe that all Israelites are saved because they're Israelites. And he's also under pressure from those who believe that he's betrayed Israel and God's promises to Israel and that he has no place really in this mission to the Gentiles and he needs to give account for his actions. Many would believe that he is in fact opposing God's Word. It's not wrong to take the gospel of salvation to the Gentiles, but you need to bring them into Israel. You need to make them Israelites on some level for them to be received. Different ideas coming from different territories of conversation, philosophy, and theology. But Paul is dealing with these things and in part writes the book of Romans to pick them up and to deal with them honestly and directly. He makes two significant arguments here in Romans chapter 9. The first is found in verse 6, and that is that not all who are descended from physical Israel belong to spiritual Israel. It has never been the case that God has saved everyone just because of their birth, just because they were born into the Israelite family. Secondly, he makes the point that God has always sovereignly chosen His people from among both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 24, chapter 9. We come to that point. Even us, even we who are saved, being called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now beginning in verse 25, down through verse 29, Paul is going to support this point from Scripture. So it really would have been ideal to consider verses 25 through 29 with the first 24 verses last week. We had enough trouble getting through that uh, lengthy text last week without that. On the other hand, verses 25 to 29, as you look at the text there, they do provide a pretty nice bridge into the next section, which begins in 930, chapter 9, verse 30. In fact, if we could redo the chapter divisions... Chapter 10 should really start at 9.30. Uh, that, that's where the theme shifts a bit. So we'll look at verses 25 through 29 in a sense as a bridge into chapter 10, which should begin at chapter 9 and verse 30. Now in these verses then, Paul demonstrates that the prophets of old believed that not all Israel would be saved and that Gentiles would be saved along with Israel. God has always chosen to save individual Jews and Gentiles. That's the thesis Paul wants to drive here. God has always chosen to save individual Jews and Gentiles. Under that, two subpoints. First, biblical support is amassed here for God's intention to save some Gentiles as Gentiles. 
verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The Old Testament prophet Hosea is quoting actually God's promise to restore Israel here. But Paul seems to see in God's relationship with Israel a corresponding pattern as he makes Gentiles his people through the gospel. So we have here the divine artist with these characteristic brush strokes in his paintings. He restored Israel, as once called in this moment of disobedience, not my people, now my people. Paul sees here the work of a loving God who continues to reach out to that which is not and to make it something. To make people his own. Thus he will act with the Gentiles as well. We know this about God, Paul says. But secondly, he amasses now biblical support for God's intention to save some Israelites as a remnant. Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Isaiah prophesied that God would use the pagan nation of Assyria to punish Israel for her disobedience. But this reference to a remnant supports the conclusion we considered last week then that Paul is not speaking here of true Israel, including Jews and Gentiles, as some would take it, but rather is looking at a subset of Israelites within the circle of of national Israel. Take a big picture circle. That's Israel. Within that big circle, a smaller circle, which is the remnant. That is a small percentage that is genuinely saved by God under whatever covenant. So the remnant of Israel responding to the gospel in Paul's day mirrors the remnant of Israelites saved in redemption history. Paul's saying it's always been this way. So those Israelites that were saying all Israelites are saved because they're Israelites, Paul said it's never been like that. God's word has always spoken of a remnant, of a true Israel within Israel. Verse 29, Isaiah predicted, in fact, that if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Israel's sin was so vile in the day of the prophet Isaiah that he muses, only God's faithful love has spared anyone in Israel from becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by the judgment of God. So Paul implies that God's salvation of a remnant of Jews in Isaiah's day supports the same pattern on this side of the cross. There will be those Israelites who respond to God in faith and are saved. Under the old covenant that was the case, we would expect that now to be the case under the new covenant. This is redemption history. This is consistent with what God has always done. 
as is God's inclusion of Gentiles as his people in the midst of this whole salvation plan. So, the first point, God has always chosen to save individual Jews and Gentiles. Secondly, then, coupled with that, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the determining factor in salvation. It's not national identity. It's not ethnic heritage. It's certainly not a position that you buy or are born into in any way. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the determining factor in salvation. Chapter 9, verse 30. Many Gentiles are right now in his day attaining a righteous standing by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. So yes, my critics, I will say it. You are right. There are many Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Here it is, verse 30. What shall we say then? Well, this is what we'll say in response to all of this, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. The irony is that many Gentiles who made no effort to gain a right standing with God have actually now attained one. Why? Because God justifies the ungodly who place their trust in His saving power. This is pure mercy. It is the bridge providing the way to God's salvation from sin. It is, in a sense, as if God built this bridge across this river for His people and said, come, take the bridge of salvation to the other side. And many, many, many of His people weren't interested. But the bridge works for whoever walks on it. And Paul says, yes, that bridge to God the Father is Jesus Christ. And those who trust that bridge, it doesn't matter what nation they come from. They're coming to God through Christ. The bridge has been built. Anyone's free to walk it. And many Gentiles are doing so. As I take the gospel of Christ throughout this world, I see it. From different tongues, nations, tribes, places, they're coming to trust Jesus as their Savior. Yeah, I'll say maybe none of us ever saw this coming. But it's the case. It's what God is doing in salvation history right now. We would think that more Israelites would be saved than Gentiles, but this is sadly not the case. And for a horrifying reason. So point before, many Gentiles are attaining a righteous standing by trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. Secondly, verse 31 and following, many Israelites are failing to attain a righteous standing by trusting in their law-keeping, not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Verse 31, but that Israel. So what should we say to these things? Gentiles are attaining a righteousness that is by faith, a right standing with God by faith, but, verse 31, in contrast, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. This is frightening. If we grab it, it is scary. God gave His precious law to Israel for her good. It was an exquisite gift. 
She had light in the darkness that no one else had by God's grace alone. We considered a few weeks ago the fatal problem with the law, and that is that we cannot keep it due to indwelling sin and due to the weakness of the flesh. But Paul brings up here an additional problem, and that is there is nothing wrong with trying to keep the law, trying to keep God's demands. In fact, we should, of course. But the problem is that Israel thought by doing so she could earn a righteous standing with God. Israel was failing to see, as Paul says in Romans 3 and 4, that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. He went back to the patriarch Abraham, didn't he? He's arguing this point, saying, look at Abraham. He trusted God. It was by faith that he was saved, not by keeping the law. He was saved before he was circumcised, pointing forward to the regulation of the law that was to come under Moses. All that argument of chapter 3 and 4, we are saved not by works, but by faith. But Israel has been taking the law and striving to be saved by good works, by obeying God. They thought they could achieve a standing with God by law-keeping. The tragedy of this is that led them then to reject the Messiah that God sent to rescue His people. Unto you a Savior is born. He will save His people from their sins. But Israel was saying in Paul's day, we have the law. We're good as we are. Verse 32 continues. They pursue a righteousness based on works, but sadly, tragically, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This, of course, is echoes from the prophet Isaiah of the Messiah who was to come. And so Paul is, is drawing from Isaiah's work and saying, here it is. God has prophesied long ago that this stone that would come, this rock would be a rock of offense and a rock of salvation. Some would trust Messiah and be saved. Some would reject Him. And even Jews before Jesus' day recognized, we have writings that indicate they recognized this was a reference to Messiah who was to come. It's no longer the interpretation by Israel today. But it was one time some sense and understanding that this is a prophecy concerning Messiah. The Messiah, the keystone of salvation history, the rock on which all must throw their trust for salvation. Far from trusting Him, Israel is offended by Him. What effect should God's law have upon Israel as we think about Messiah who is to come? What effect should it have? It should have revealed her sin. It should have caused her to embrace Jesus' payment for sin as the Lamb of God. Instead, Israel, striving to obey God's law in the flesh, looked at Jesus' death on the cross, looked at this substitutionary Lamb of God, and said, we don't need that. 
We are obedient law keepers. We need no more sacrifice than the animals we have. So as they lift their heads in pride, they fall flat on their faces over Christ. The stone that was to secure them, the stone that was to build them up is the very stone they trip over and reject. Maybe just to put some color on it, to help us see it, I hope, to some degree. Let's picture early 1800s America. A large family clan of farmers lives together in relative poverty in a rural area of Ohio on a plain where they try to eke out a living. They maintain a close family identity. There's strong loyalty. Gatherings of reunions and weddings and funerals continue to unite them together over the generations. Now, on occasion, a child will leave the the clan and go westward as a pioneer and find life somewhere else. But mostly everybody stays here, here in Ohio, working out this living but one day, word reaches the great family that one of the sons that left has really become something significant in the region that we know as Montana. And he's become a, a ruler in this area and has purchased a large tract of land that's very fertile and beautiful and thriving. Not only that, as they're kind of well with pride, their hearts well with pride as they think about this one that's left them and become this important person out west somewhere, but not only that, there's been an invitation that has come from him to get some wagons together, to get some horses, to draw those wagons across the plains, and to make the long journey westward and to settle in this area of Montana. Well, the family's thrilled. It's like a dream. It doesn't even seem possible that this could happen. They've just struggled to live for so long and to think of this fertile area and this one who would take them in. They make the long journey there, and it's a hard, long one. But as they're making their way out to this region... As they come through the little towns along the prairie, they realize it. They're, they're really kind of something. I mean, people have heard about this man, and you, you're his family, and you've been invited there to go to this place, and they're celebrated where they go. There's cheers along the way as they go, and then there's others who jeer them and despise them for this great privilege that they have. They finally reach the place and a guide points them to a low-lying mountaintop. It's a grassy, verdant plain up there and there's trees to shade an area and they find this wooden structure, this beautiful pavilion that's all set up with this amazing banquet. There's linen tablecloths outside. It's a perfect day. There's no wind. Everything's just ideal in this setting. And they're going to come now as a family and be received by this great man and to banquet there together as a large family. The journey now done and a relationship beginning with this man that they've never met. 
or few of them have ever met. But as this man welcomes the caravan, strangely, something happens. Many of the family members have gotten used to being celebrated along the way at the various towns. And and even when there's opposition to them in the towns, they kind of feel like they have a place here and they want to keep experiencing this as they go from place to place. And so, oddly, many of them say, "We we don't want to come to the banquet. We don't want to stay here. We want to keep going on in our caravan. Well, there's a massive amount of food here. There's many, many tables that are set. And so the man appeals to Native Americans who are living in that area and invites them to come. And there's some Chinese immigrants working on the railroad in the area and he invites them to come and brings other people into this banquet area. And it's just the most beautiful setting and the most luxurious meal one could imagine. And the man, as the meal begins, he looks around and he says, who are all these people? Who are they? I don't know. They're not my family. But the meal's been made and we might as well eat it. And he welcomes them all here. Let's feed who's with us. And they're certain, these who eat, that this is probably the happiest day of their life. If we picture that caravan as the law of God, its end, its termination, its goal was the banquet on the hill with their relative. But the group that goes on is like the Israelites up to this day who continue to pursue the law who continue to follow its dictates, its rituals, and to believe that we're somebody because we continue on on this caravan and are received in these towns with cheers and jeers. They've missed the whole point of it. Perhaps that pictures it a bit for us. It puts some light on it. As we continue on in verse 1 of chapter 10 where he says, In light of this, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My hope is that the family would stop at the hill and receive this banquet and be drawn into the relationship with this man. That's my desire. Or as Paul puts it, my longing is that Israel would know Christ and be saved. This is what God has set in place all along. This is where He was pointing them. For I bear witness, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They've made their way along the route. They have done everything that they could to obey the law. They have sought to please God in their own thinking and way, but now they've just journeyed right on past the very point. 4, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. This is how this has happened. Israel is blind to the way God intends for her to gain a right standing with Him. That way now is faith alone in Christ alone. But refusing this way, Israel zealously pursues her own righteousness. 
She fails to realize that God has opened a different door of salvation. It's not different in the sense of starting all over, but it's the end and the result of it. Here it is in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Beyond the pride of depending on their own religious efforts to please God, this is precisely what Israel misses. Jesus is the end of the law in the sense that his death and resurrection mark the end of the era in which law was the central feature in one's relationship to God. That era has ended. The wagon train is over. There's no more point there in that way of life. And it's the, it's the start of a new era of relationship and salvation, a relationship with Christ. It also is saying that Jesus is the end of the law in the sense that He was always the ultimate goal of everything to which the law was pointing. He kept God's law perfectly, and so He fulfilled it. And He is the salvation our failure to keep God's law requires. So Jesus now imputes His righteous standing to those who place their faith in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what just turns Paul's heart upside down. It puts an arrow right through it. If you use our illustration, the caravan was always heading to this place of a new relationship with Messiah of a new place a new era a new way of relating to God to which the law was always pointing but sadly Israel has stumbled over the very source of her salvation the individual that brought the clan out west was seen as an offense by the time they arrived many of them said who do you think you are We have our own life here. We have our own way. And we'll do our own thing. And they ignored the grace and the mercy. The illustration falls so far short of what Israel has done to reject her Messiah. She's chosen to trust her legalistic righteousness over faith in the Messiah who alone can give that standing to her. It's a horrifying story in many levels. And we see that with Paul as he speaks here. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Linking to chapter 9 and verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They've missed the point of the law. They've missed its end, its goal, its purpose. They don't understand the new era of salvation that's in Jesus, their Messiah. And in their failure has come an opportunity for Gentiles to walk across the bridge to salvation, to enter into the banquet hall in the presence of Christ, for us to embrace Israel's Messiah as our Messiah, as our Savior. So I think there is here in this text before us both a warning and a wonder. 
There's a warning that I think we can apply to us directly today, and that you may not be a Jew seeking to please God by keeping the Mosaic law. I don't know that I would speak to anyone here today where that would apply. But there is a related danger to us, a warning that we should take to heart. It is very possible that you are striving to be a good person so as to please God. Though you may not be a Jew, you may not be following the law, you're following a law of your own making, which in the end was what Israel was doing, what the caravan was doing once they passed the hilltop and went on further west. It's a, it's a frightening proposition. We can take the message of Christianity and turn it into something it is not and be striving like Israel of old and Israel today to gain our own righteousness. I will be a good person. I will do the good things. And walking in the midst of a Christian church, I'm actually depending on myself for my salvation. I believe that I will stand before God and give account and I'll be able to explain that I have achieved your reception. I have satisfied your demands. I've been better than others. And will be eternally lost. Being a good person, doing religious things, Striving to please God by your own good deeds is not the bridge to salvation. It is the bridge to destruction. The Apostle Paul was on that bridge. He was in that world. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, this is what he said about it. I have as much reason as anyone else to put confidence in the flesh. I have as much reason as anybody to say, look at what I've done. Look at the good that I have accomplished. Look at how I've qualified myself before God. Verse 4, Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. It's not a good thing. He's not saying it's a good thing, but that's his zeal for God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was above reproach in keeping God's law on some level. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Here, look at it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The analogy breaks down on a lot of levels, but if it again pictures it on some level, he's saying in a sense, I was in the caravan, 
I was with the pioneers journeying out across America to the West. And we got to that place where we were received by this Messiah. And when the caravan said, we're journeying on, we're not stopping here, we're not receiving this man's grace, everything I owned in this world went on with that caravan. And I counted it all as nothing but a debit. It was all a loss if I stayed on that journey. I let it all go. And I looked into the face of Messiah who said to me, let it go. It's your destruction. Come to me and I will provide everything. And Paul said, I let it go. I let my goodness go. I let my good works go. I let all dependence upon myself, trusting in the law, I let it go. I let it journey on, on that wagon. And I came to Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him. And in that, I gained everything. I gained life. I gained hope. And now my heart aches with yearning for the people that went on and stumbled over Messiah. There's a warning. Don't be that person that goes past Jesus. That person who thinks that Jesus will help you, but you'll pretty much take care of it yourself. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin. He stood in the place of the sinner. He paid the cost and the judgment of that sin. It's not in you, in your sinful heart, to earn somehow His favor. His favor is there as a gift because He's paid the full penalty of sin. Trust that. Put your hope in it. You say, I don't know that I can. He defeated death. He rose from the grave. He lives today to show that He's defeated the penalty of sin, which is death. There's nothing more that He can do If he showed up today and he got in your face and he told you to trust him, you wouldn't. Unless you will right now. Because the empty tomb is all that he needed to do to say, I've saved. I've saved a people for my name. Come to him. Trust him. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't do what Israel has done largely and stumble over the salvation in Jesus Christ. But there is secondly... For us here, a wonder. Is there not? Why are we here? How do we explain this gathering? This gathering displays the eternal purpose of God to graciously welcome us into the banquet as Gentiles. What's amazing about it is that the invitation didn't come to us back in Ohio. It just come to us here, where we are. We didn't seek it. We weren't on the caravan. We weren't in the family. We weren't invited along those terms. There's just a banquet hall there as Messiah welcomed us in as Gentiles and said, I'm going to fill my hall. 
I'm going to fill each table and each seat. Come and eat with me. And we came. And we really, there's a wonder to this gathering here today. We kind of look around and go, who are we? What are we doing here? Again, we get used to it. It doesn't keep us up at night. But when we think of what God has done for thousands of years of salvation history, there is a wonder to every time we gather together as Gentiles. And we're reminded of where it ends as we get to the book of Revelation and we look around the throne and there we see worshiping Christ, people from every nation and tribe and language. This has always been God's plan. It has been His plan to bless the nations through Abraham. But we can stress only to bless Abraham, but it's to bless the nations through him. And there then, we don't look around sheepishly. We certainly don't look around proudly. But we look around gratefully and with confidence. I was invited to this banquet. I have come to know Christ as Savior as a Gentile. And is that peace of our identity really sinks down within us, not just around us today in our particular place and time where these things that don't keep us up at night, but when we think about it in terms of the millennia of the work of God, it begins to ground us in who we are in Christ. It begins to deepen our faith as we recognize this worship service is purchased by the blood of Christ. And we, as participants in it, have been invited in, in an irony of saving grace, in an amazing turn of events. Here we are in this identity, worshiping Christ together as Gentiles. It's an amazing work of God. And as Paul gets to the end of it, and he's going to be on it, Uh, in our time together for a, a bit longer in the book of Romans. But how does he end it all? In absolute stunning wonder. God's ways are so deep, so profound. Our salvation is no afterthought. And it's no matter of merely human effort and will. It's a work of the sovereign God for his people. Are you in that people? Are you in that people? Are you among them by faith? Or are you stumbling over Christ? If we know Him, if He is our Messiah, if He is our Savior, we can rejoice in this grace today. And come again, Lord willing, next week, even tonight, and to sing. To gather around the Lord's table as we plan to do this evening and to rejoice in the salvation that is in Christ, to just keep on singing as a church of those who've been saved in this wonder of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you pleading that these truths will settle down into our soul and deepen us beyond anything that would be accomplished by mere practical exhortation as important as practical exhortation is, as important as Romans 12 
through 16 are. May we not miss the foundation that has been laid for us. Bring to Christ those currently rejecting Him, we would ask. Bring to Christ in wonder each of us who knows Him. And may we sing for the glory of Your name. Through Him we pray.